You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. I am really glad that I was able to stick around. And I want to say thank you so much for um, how... Um, warm and welcoming um, this church has been and uh, it's a real testimony to the love of Jesus shed abroad in people's hearts here so um, like Nick said my name is Richard Um, I have been married uh, this year will be 44 years to my wife Valerie and we have four oh yes yes that's called grace (laughs) she needed lots of it because of me um Anyway, we have four kids. Our oldest, uh, Deborah, she's 41, and she's married and lives in Brooklyn, New York, and she has our only two grandkids with her. So we have this 3,000-mile gulf between us, but thank the Lord for FaceTime and stuff like that. We do get to see them occasionally, but not as much as we would like. Um, We have another son, 36. His name is Sean. He's married and lives in Los Angeles. Um, A daughter, Ashley, who is 25, um, and she's married, and she's presently living with us uh, through COVID with her husband, and um, and then uh, our youngest boy Nathan, who is 22, and single, and love that guy to love them all. They're just amazing. So that's a little bit about me. I've been pastoring at Metro Calvary for 17 years, uh, 13 years before that um, at Calvary Chapel of Grass Valley, and uh, came down the hills um, from the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas to plant that church in Roseville, California. And, uh, and then before that, eight years on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa. So there's the brief biography of uh, the guy you're going to be listening to this morning. Will you stand with me? I want to read the first, or ver- uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 for you this morning. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that in these verses, you reveal to us our Savior. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to shine into each of our hearts this morning the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For any here this morning who are not yet Christian. We pray that Jesus would be so clearly presented that the Holy Spirit would bring Jesus so clearly to bear upon their hearts that they would know that the only and reasonable thing to do is to give their lives to him. And Lord, for those who know you, we pray they would be built up and encouraged, Lord, and and to live on mission with you and for you in a broken world. And for all of that, Lord, I pray, please overlook my inadequacies as a man and as a teacher so that this morning your word would go forth in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. 
all to the glory of the name of Jesus. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, guys. Well, the, the theme of this morning is who Jesus is changes everything. Here in Revelation chapter 1, we are given a vision of Jesus. And then in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we're actually given his view of seven specific churches, local churches, in the region of Asia Minor at the end of the first century. The vision of Jesus precedes this view of the churches, and for divine reasons. The vision of Jesus is first because without Jesus, there just is no church. Without Jesus, there are no local churches. Um, without Jesus, the church at large and the local church really has no identity. No, no idea of, of, of what we're supposed to look like. No idea of what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to be in this world. Who Jesus is actually changes the way we understand ourselves. And I pray that that would really be driven home to our hearts this morning. Who Jesus is changes the way we understand ourselves. We never want to start in the Bible trying to find out who we are and then work our way to Jesus. We start with who Jesus is because we only understand who we are in light of him. In fact, when you read those seven letters to the churches um, in chapters two and three, what you find out is that everything Jesus has to say to each one of those seven churches, he always begins with what is made known about him at the beginning of the book this vision of Jesus that we're going to look at this morning. So here's the starting point. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus is the one who is. Now, there are a lot of people who believe that there was a Jesus, but he's a Jesus who was, but he, not now. He's just dead and buried along with every other religious figure of, of history. But according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, that's really wrong. Jesus is the one who is, and hence this, this continuing celebration. I think this would be appropriate to say, he is risen. He is risen, he is risen indeed. He's not dead. He is, right now, this morning. Jesus is the God of the present tense. Whatever your present circumstances might be, Jesus is the presently ruling, reigning, risen Savior. And that is such great news for us. And we're going to dive into this a little deeper in just a little bit. But we're not only told that Jesus is the one who is, we're told that Jesus is the one who was. Jesus is the eternal pre-existent God. Jesus pre-existed all of creation. It, it, the very first verse of, of the first chapter of, of the first book of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. In the very first verse of the first chapter of the gospel, according to John, the guy who's the author of the book of Revelation, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Guys, there was a time when there was nothing but God. And God had no beginning. He is eternally existent. And this is going to have tremendous, I just, this is just not theological stuff. This is, guys, this has tremendous impact upon the way we think and live right now. In speaking of the promised Messiah, the prophet Micah said this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and I'll read this from the King James. It says that his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. 
So Jesus is the one who is, he's the one who was, his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Before anything was created, there he was. And he's also the one who is to come. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's exalted and it says that he's exalted far above all rule and authority and and power and dominion and above every name that is named. But Paul doesn't stop there. He tells us that Jesus is exalted not only in this age but also in that which is to come. In the book of Hebrews, we read the same thing. Hebrews 1 verse 8, it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, this is our Jesus. Without beginning, without end, absolutely, utterly incomprehensible. And yet, Though you and I cannot intellectually comprehend the eternality of Jesus, though we can't intellectually comprehend his pre-existence or his resurrection from the dead, living now and forever and ever, we can experience in life-changing ways everything that proceeds from his incomprehensible nature. Follow me here. The one who is, who was and is to come, he loves us with a love that was and is and is to come. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I love this verse. It's so beautiful. God says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That means, guys, right now, God drawing you to himself. You're in this place today, in this little spot on the planet, because God is drawing you to himself. And he's doing it by way of his loving kindness. It's his loving kindness that he is drawing you to himself. But that God drawing you to himself by his loving kindness is birthed from a love that was and is and is to come. But we don't stop there. In Psalm 103, verse 17, we're told that his mercy, and some of our translations read his compassion. I love that word, mercy, compassion. His mercy, his compassion is from everlasting. Guys, the mercy and the compassion that we desperately need, hour by hour, minute by minute, every day of our lives, comes to us from a reservoir that has no beginning and no end. It'll never be drained. But it doesn't stop at his love and his mercy, his compassion. Jesus sustains us with power that was and is and is to come. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 and 29, we read, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Then in verse 29, it says, he gives power to the faint. Guys, as we look at at, at the eternality of Jesus, he's the one who is, who was, and is to come. It changes everything because we understand God in light of who Jesus is. And here's the problem that we have, that, that, that who Jesus is changes. A lot of time, we try to interpret God through our emotions, Have you ever discovered that your emotions are not always on point? (laughs) They're broken, right? They're fallen. 
They're a part of what's broken in creation. And so we can't trust in our emotions, but they're so powerful. And what we do is through our emotions, we try to interpret God through the way we feel. But that's backwards. We interpret our feelings through the one who is and was and is to come. His love that has no beginning and end. His mercy and compassion that has no beginning and no end. His power that has no beginning and no end. Suddenly then when we look at our circumstances as well, because sometimes we try to interpret God in light of our circumstances. We think that maybe he's, he's not so compassionate, he's not so merciful because our circumstances are messy and hard and difficult. But instead of trying to interpret God through the lens of our circumstances or interpret God through the lens of our emotions, we interpret our emotions in light of who he is. We interpret our circumstances in light of, he, of who he is. So John continues in verse 5, and it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So here's Jesus is God, eternal and preexistent, and he's also the faithful witness. The night before Jesus died in our place for our sins, um, at the Last Supper, he said in John 18, verse 37, that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Guys, Jesus is the, and, and, and when I was growing up and going to school, I wasn't too much into grammar like definite articles and things like that. That little word, the, it's a definite article. It's not like he's a faithful witness. He's the faithful witness, right? Guys, Jesus is the faithful witness to the truth of God. Jesus is the faithful witness to who God is. And so if we want to try to know who God is and what God is like, we look at Jesus, and that's so important for us when we're sharing faith with pe- our faith with people who are unsure of, of who God is because they're, they're interpreting God in light of life as they see it in a broken world and their feelings and I just don't feel there could be a God. And you can say, well, if you really want to know what God is like, let me show you Jesus, right? John 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And that word declared, it means to bring into the open, to bring into the light. In fact, it's a word that's used in theology. Uh, It's a Greek word from which we get a word called exegesis or like exegetical Bible study, right? It's, It's looking at a Greek word and drawing out of it the fullness of its meaning, right? So Jesus has exegeted God for us. In John 14, verse 9, again, this is at the Last Supper, Jesus looked at Philip and he says, Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. Isn't that sound majestic? It is so utterly majestic. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Guys, who Jesus is, the faithful witness, changes everything. Even as the Father sent Jesus to bear witness to the truth, Jesus sends us on the exact same mission. After his resurrection, he said this in John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus sends us to be faithful witnesses. And he not only sends us to be faithful witnesses, but he promises us the power to be faithful witnesses. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be 
my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, even to Longmont, Colorado. Isn't that amazing? Guys, Whitefield, please know this, who Jesus is, the faithful witness, informs us, defines us, and directs us in our mission. A guy named Paul Tripp said this, and it stuck with me, that, that those terms, inform, define, direct. He says, God created us to be informed, defined, and directed by him. And now here's Jesus, God become man, and who he is as he's revealed to us in the book of Revelation, as he's revealed to us in the Gospels and in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament prophecies, who he is informs us, especially the faithful witness, informs us, defines us, and directs us in our mission. And, and we are actually participants in the life of the one who is the faithful witness. Witness. See, that is the, distinctive, the distinctiveness of Christianity compared to any other form of religion in the world. Christianity is about a human being having an actual living union, life-giving relationship with Jesus. So the one who is the faithful witness, his life flows into us. We're sharing in the life of the one in the nature of the one who is the faithful witness. And so even as the life of the vine flows into the branches, the life of the faithful witness flows into us. And that's why Paul the Apostle could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, it continues, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Now this does not mean that he's the first to be raised from the dead. In the Old Testament... Uh, some quick verse references for you. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4, and 2 Kings 13, as well as in the Gospels, there are accounts of people being raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead. But none of them were raised to never die again. They were raised, and they lived a little longer, and then they died. Firstborn speaks of preeminence, above all, Right? Jesus is preeminent. It's not one, two, three. It's above all. Jesus is preeminent. He's the highest of those raised from the dead because he's the first to die and be raised with a glorified body to never die again. And the Bible tells us that the one who is the firstborn from the dead, the one who is the first to die and be raised with a glorified body to never die again, that he's the first fruit of what is to come. There in the margins of your Bible, you can write 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Jesus is the prototype, if you would. He's the one who goes into the water first and says, hey guys, come on in. The water's fine. Guys, like Jesus, those who believe in him will rise to never die again. Now, barring the rapture of the church, we're all gonna die We'll be laid in a grave, but we will be raised never to die again. Some verses there on the screen for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. Paul says, for while we are still in this tent, this body, we groan. And I'm discovering the, the longer I'm in this tent, the more I groan. Uh, <laughs> literally, getting up, sitting down, it's really strange. I get, oh, my kids look at me like, what was so hard about that? <laughs> right? 
He says, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. And then in this magnificent declaration in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And here it is, imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put in parentheses here, who is the firstborn from the dead, right? Guys, Whitefields, who Jesus is, the firstborn from the dead, changes everything. Because Jesus risen and forever alive with a glorified body is exactly what every Christian is headed for. That is our trajectory. And that means that everything between the already of his death and resurrection and the not yet of ours matters. The one who is the firstborn from the dead changes us from living for the temporal for the here, for living for the here and now to living for the eternal. In fact, Paul concludes those amazing words in 1 Corinthians 15 with a very, very important word. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it's the word therefore. Now, whenever I read my Bible and my devotions, when I see little words like for or therefore, I'm always like making boxes around them because they're so significant for us. When Paul writes that word, therefore, after already declaring those magnificent things about our future resurrection to have a a new glorified body to live forever in the presence of the Lord, he closes with that word, therefore, and he's saying this. He's saying, because of the certainty that we will be like Jesus, raised with a glorified body, and we'll live forever in the presence of the Lord, because of that certainty, He says, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Everything between the already of his resurrection and the not yet of ours matters. It matters. So here's a great diagnostic, guys. If you say that one day you'll be raised like Jesus, given a new glorified body, and you'll never die, you'll live forever in the presence of the Lord, then ask yourself this question. If you really believe that, say, am I steadfast? Am I so, so certain of that, that I'm steadfast, that I'm immovable, that I'm always abounding in the work of the Lord? Because I know that in the Lord, my labor is not in vain. Oh, who Jesus is, the firstborn from the dead, changes everything. Verse five continues, and just gets this this whole thing just keeps building and building. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. If you're a Christian, your life is all about 
Jesus. I love the, the long sleeve black t-shirts that I've been seeing around here. It says, it's all about Jesus. I love that. I say that much back home at Metro. It is all about Jesus. So here's the deal. If you're a Christian, your life is all about the one who is the ruler of kings on earth. Guys, there is no authority higher than Jesus. All human authority is subject to Jesus. All human authority answers to Jesus. All human authority will be judged by Jesus. Jesus, above all human authority, changes everything. Jesus trumps the authority of culture and trends. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul refers to fallen culture as the course of this world. So for those who are not yet Christian, and I mentioned this first service, that's how I like to, to label people who are unbelievers at this moment. I like to call them, they're just not yet Christians. And I'm praying that they will become Christians. But rather than looking at them and thinking of them in terms of that are adversarial or it's us versus them, like we're Christians and they're just not yet Christian. So for those who are not yet Christian, their authority is the course of this world, which is orchestrated and directed by the little g God of this world. As Christians, here's a challenge that we face. The trends and the values of fallen culture, they want to become our authority. They used to be our authority until God rescued us out of that domain and put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now we have Jesus, the one who's above the kings of the, all the kings on earth. He is our authority. Fallen culture wants us to adopt the trends and, and values of culture to speak with authority to, to us rather than the words of Jesus who's above all authority. So that means Jesus trumps the authority of peer pressure and peer pressure never goes away whether you're young or you're old, in the home, in work, at school. Guys, every form of human authority from parents to professors, from spouse to supervisor is not your ultimate authority. Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Every form of human authority is under Jesus and answers to Jesus. Now, I, I'll tell you, this is this man, this pastor's observation, 2020 up to this point in 2021, it seems like a, a lot of Christians have forgotten that every form of human authority is under Jesus. We're, so many eyes have been on this governing authority or this, this person in, that has governing authority or this, this the, the federal authority or the state authority or the local authorities. It's like, no, 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 we're all okay because Jesus is the ruler of all the kings on earth. He reigns, he rules. We're looking to him. It should change the way we live if he is the one who's above all kings on earth. That means every day we answer to Jesus. Paul put it like this, but as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We should be living as though we actually believe that one day we will stand before the one who is the ruler of all the kings on earth. We should be living to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then look at what the Holy Spirit says about the one who is ruler of kings on earth. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Guys, the one who is above all human authority loves us. 
The gospel declares the glorious good news that in a very real moment in time past, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. But here in this passage, the Holy Spirit is very careful to let us know that the one who is ruler of the kings on earth loves us in the now. In the now. The verb is in present tense. The word love is in the present tense. It's an action still in, prog- in process. This, it's a state of being with no assessment of the action's completions. So it's something happening now that is not yet completed. It's continually going on. And it's in the active voice, which means that the ruler of kings on earth is the one actively loving us in the present tense. Jesus loves us in the now. Jesus loves us literally in this very moment. And this very moment. And you know where I'm going, right? This very moment. Now is so interesting, a word. I say, literally, I say the word now, and as soon as I've said now, now becomes then, right? It's not a very long period of time. But Jesus actively loves us in the now. Jesus actively loves us in the smallest measurement of time. To the best of my knowledge, the smallest measurement of time is called Planck time. P-L-A-N-C-K. It's a man's last name. Planck time, here's here's this measurement of time. It's the interval required for a photon traveling at the speed of light to cover the Planck length. Now check out this number, and I got really tweaked when I read it. It is just 0.5 times 10 to the negative 43rd seconds. Wait, how can you have negative time? I don't get this. The guy writing the article on Planck time said, don't let the minus sign mess you up. It works in physics, right? (laughs) Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Even in that smallest portion of the now, Jesus actively loves you. Who Jesus is changes everything. Have you ever found yourself thinking, well, I think Jesus loved me a few minutes ago, and then I went and said something, and I knew before I said it, I shouldn't have said it. Or I went and did something that I knew before I did it, I shouldn't have done it. I'm pretty sure he loved me a few minutes ago, but when I did that, not so sure right now. But here's the deal. There's never a now, even the smallest part of now, that Jesus is not actively loving you. Is that the way you understand who you are? Guys, you know, we are those whom Jesus actively loves in the smallest possible measurement of time. That's our identity. You know, we sing that song, you're a good, good father. I love it. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. That is our identity, guys. We are loved, actively loved in the smallest measurement of time by the one who is the ruler above all kings on earth. Is that the way you and I view our circumstances? Is that the way you and I interpret the truthfulness of our feelings? This is so great, guys. You and I, we can say with absolute certainty, the ruler of the kings of the earth loves me. But it doesn't stop there. 
The Holy Spirit inspired John to say, the ruler of the kings on earth loves us. And again, who Jesus is changes everything. We should love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church. As Jesus loves this collection of redeemed men and women called Whitefields. So guys, you guys should be giving yourselves to what Jesus gave himself for. You should be giving yourselves to that which Jesus at this very moment is giving himself to. He's giving himself to you right now. If you really love what Jesus loves, then your time, your talent, and treasure will follow. You'll be investing those things, your time, talent, and treasure, not just in the people closest to you. And I'm sure that that most people here, if you've been here for a while, you have people within this community of believers that are closest to you, of all of them. But you see, the deal is, is Jesus doesn't love you and your closest friends. He loves this, this local church. And so you should be giving yourself uh, to what Jesus gave himself for and what Jesus is is presently giving himself to, this community of believers, not just those closest, but all of these people. Goes on, says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. People often ask, how can I know God loves me? When we don't feel as though God loves us, we need to recalibrate. We need to find a reference point for the truth that God loves us. And I pray that what we're learning about who Jesus is here in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, would be a go-to place for you. But the simplest answer to that question is, where do, I, where do I recalibrate? How do I recalibrate? Very simple, look at the cross. John three sixteen. I love how the Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. It says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, you can tell the depth of a well by how much rope you have to lower. When I see how much rope God had to lower, when I see the length he had to go, the, the length of sending his son to to die in my place for my sins, how far he had to go to save me. I don't see how great I am. I see how lost I was. And then I see how much he loves me. The ruler of the kings of the earth loves us and then says, freed us from our sins by his blood. Those words are absolutely mind-blowing. There are two life-changing phrases in that declaration. The phrase, our sin... And the phrase, his blood. Our sin, his blood. Jesus loves us and has freed us. He has loosed us and obliterated the effect of our sins with his blood. Who Jesus is and what he has done changes everything. Because of Jesus, we are not what we used to be. Our sin made us his enemy. Our sin made us far from God. His blood brought us near. Our sin defiled us. His blood made us clean. Our sin made us guilty before God. His blood made us righteous. 
Guys, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done changes everything. In specific, specific events, cross and resurrection, that transpired at a specific time in history past, the week of Passover, circa 32 AD, in that specific, those specific events at that specific time, we were loosed from our sins by his blood. And two things follow from this. And, and I'm gonna close with these two things and then Pastor Nick is gonna come and lead us into a time of taking the bread and the cup together. First of all, guys, Jesus has already done this. The last words from, of Jesus from the cross, it is finished. In the, in the, in the language of the, the manuscript, it's one word, to tell us die paid in full. He's already done it. And Jesus is the one who did it. But the cleansing, liberating power of the blood of Jesus is only applied to our lives by faith in Jesus. We must receive the work of the cross and resurrection by faith. We must surrender our lives to Jesus out of belief that he washed us from our sins with his blood. I heard this story a long time ago and it's just been a keeper for me. It's such a clear picture of what it means to, to believe in Jesus so much that you're just gonna surrender your life to him. There was a guy named Charles Blondin. Anybody heard of Charles Blondin? Raise your hand. There's a couple of hands. He was a high wire artist some, some time back. And he wanted to prove to the world that he was the greatest high wire artist who ever lived or ever would live and he was going to do it by, by walking across the Niagara Falls. So they strung a, a high wire across the Niagara Falls. And he says, to show you that I'm the greatest who ever was and ever will be, I'm not just going to walk on this. I'm going to push a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls. So all these people started placing their bets, right? And he, you know, I believe he'll make it. No, I bet he won't make it. And one guy in the crowd just kept saying, no, he is the greatest. I've seen this guy. There is nobody better than him. He is going to pull this off. He's the best. And the crowd turned to this guy and said, well, if you're so sure that he's going to make it, don't bet your money getting his wheelbarrow. <laughs> well, that's what it looks like to believe in Jesus. I'm so convinced that he did what I could never do that I was so lost that the rope had to be lowered so long that that's the only way I could be saved. I believe that so much that I'm getting in his wheelbarrow. I surrender my life to him. And then lastly, the cleansing, liberating, reconciling power of the blood of Jesus, it's effectual in the life of every man and woman who's believed with their heart on the Lord Jesus today. John, in his first epistle, tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing us from all sin. Guys, the blood of Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. What confidence we have in him. And I'm just so thankful that Nick is going to lead us into to our time in communion because what better place than to think of his body given and his blood shed. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. 
If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.